0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on The Truth of the Matter, we have with us a really special guest. It's Misha Zelensky, who is the war correspondent for the Australian... Financial Review, one of our favorite publications here at CSIS. Misha is just back from Ukraine and he's here in DC this week. So I'm really grateful you came into CSIS to sit down with me to share some of your experiences.
1: Uh, Pleasure's all mine, mate. And I'll let uh, Michael Stutchbury know how much you love the paper, mate. Yeah, please do.
0: Please do. They know and they know our door is always open. So, Misha, you've been on the ground reporting in Ukraine. Let me first ask you what's your assessment of the morale of Ukrainian civilians who have just been getting, you know, assassinated, obliterated, massacred, tortured. It's horrible. Well, you yeah, know, I suppose
1: in two ways. One, there's a lot of anger, right? Yeah, yeah there's a lot of anger to Putin and to everything that he's done. And when I arrived, you know, I arrived about five days before the war started and I wasn't sure what to expect. I'm reading the reports 200,000 troops are massing in the north, in the, in the south, and the east of the country. And I landed there in Kiev, and it's like a normal cosmopolitan city, same as D.C., walk around, bars are full, restaurants are full, it's very normal. People were laughing at me when I was talking about whether or not there was going to be a war. Then, of course, a few days later, you know, Putin invades. There was a period of shock, and then it's obviously turned to anger. But overall, the morale is extremely high. They feel like they're winning, and in many ways they are. When you look at the fact that Putin couldn't take Kiev, now this is a city that's supposed to be fall in a day. Now, here we are nearly seven weeks on, and they've had to not just not take the city. They've had to retreat from their attack on Kyiv. It's what that is, not a recalculation. It's a retreat. So the morale of Ukrainians is extremely high. I mean, they're outmanned, outgunned. You know, they've got every reason to give in except the protection of their homeland. And that's a powerful motivator. And so they're doing extremely well. Their bravery is extraordinary. They're tired. It's a volunteer effort, right? Their army, small it's professional. It's well resourced by the West, although we can talk about that as well, about the resources that they need. But the volunteer effort into the territorial defences, which is essentially the citizen army, but also the logistical support, they are tired, right? They are feeling tired. But their pride in their country is extraordinarily high. You know, as I said, when I landed, there were no Ukrainian – I was expecting maybe, you know, maybe like Maidan 2014, are there going to be flags? Very muted. There was no flag waving. There was no jingoism. There was no sort of want to egg on any sort of invasion from Putin. The moment that he invaded, the whole thing changed. Flags everywhere. Yeah, Ukrainian identity everywhere. You know, like you, you saw it on every building, on every bus board, on every you know, car driving past. Everyone's carrying their flags. They've got pins. And so everything Putin feared creating this Ukrainian identity, he's triggered it with his own invasion. Yeah, he thought they were going to lay down and welcome him with open arms. No, well, this is the narrative that they were telling themselves, right? And, you know, you know there's a lot of horrendous ironies in this. You know, the people that have suffered the most uh, from his invasion and the, you know, and the brutality that they've inflicted on some of these cities has been in the most Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. You know, I interviewed a guy by the name of Alexander Vilkul, who was Deputy Prime Minister to Yanukovych, third in charge of that government in 2014, Russian speaker, pro-Russian party from the party of the regions. He said, the Russians are fascists, we're going to kill them all, and I'm now going to start speaking Ukrainian along with everyone else. So this is sort of, you know, the kind of absolute opposite of what Putin has sought out. He's triggered in, you know, in the Ukrainians because – How else do you respond to your family being murdered? How else do you respond to your city being destroyed? I mean, there's no other way to do it other than to dig in and fight, and that's what they're doing. Right, and
0: they're hungry, and they're cold, and they're, you know, all this stuff. I mean, the reports we've seen have just been heartbreaking. My colleague Elliot Cohen points out that war is usually a contest of who gets the most exhausted, and in this case, it certainly seems that could be the case. Have you interacted with Ukrainian soldiers? What's their morale and are they exhausted? They're giving it everything they got, obviously.
1: Yeah, so the Ukrainians, you know, as I said, they are tired, but they are getting the sense that they're winning. And that raises your spirits, right? When you have you know, defeated huge tank divisions you know, on the doorstep of your capital, you know, that gives a big boost to morale. But you're right, in terms of you know, who wants it more, I think it's clearly the Ukrainians. When you look at the reports coming out of Intel about the Russians, firstly, their logistical support was diabolically bad. They didn't have enough food or fuel. They're pulling into Ukrainian petrol stations and saying, can we fill up our tank and getting arrested? This is sort of the nonsense that they're dealing with. Um, They're calling home to their parents using Ukrainian phones and being intercepted by uh, Western and Ukrainian intelligence saying, mom, they're shooting back at us. We were told that we were coming here on a training exercise or we were told that, you know, Uh, Ukrainian women would be throwing themselves at our feet, and they're not. I spoke to a very prominent Ukrainian politician by the name of uh, Kiwa Rudrik, who's the leader of the Voice Party in the RADA there. And she said, you know, the Russians were told that we'd be throwing ourselves at their feet, but instead we're throwing Molotov cocktails. And so that is the kind of the response, and it's really shocked the troops. And they're either poorly trained, poorly informed, poorly resourced, or basically, you know, don't really know why they're there at all. Right, there's no strategy. There's no strategy at all. And it's really unclear, really, what is going on with Putin's army. I mean, that's a big question mark in all this is how badly they have fought. It's been a humiliation, really, when you look at it, when you zoom out. I mean, it's been horrific what's happened to Ukrainians and to their cities and their country. But overall, this is a humiliation for the Russian army. Which major power could they beat with this performance?
0: Doesn't seem like they could beat any. Well,
1: this is the question, right? He's, you know, Putin put in about 99% of the 200,000 troops and tanks, et cetera, that would had stationed on the border, but that's 55% of his overall army. His economy is crippled. How does he restore and rebuild that? So you talk about fatigue and exhaustion. Well, right now the Russians have withdrawn from big parts of the country. They're sort of focusing on the east, and they're, you know, now that they've destroyed Mariupol, broadly, just horrendous what's happened there. But they are now sort of starting to focus their troops into Donbass. They've got a lot of their divisions back in Belarus and back in Russia to refuel. But you can't rebuild tanks overnight, especially when your country is enormously under sanctions. And also you're going to what to send in conscripts that are already unwilling and don't want to go. I mean, Putin's lost seven generals <laughs> you know, in it's seven hard weeks. It's believe. The correct number of generals to lose is zero. Sure. And, you know, so the There was actually one example where um, they effectively had a mutiny in one of the uh, divisions because they were losing so many troops. Overthrowing their superior officers. Right. And so, you know, that reporting is filtering back into the general population and the general army population. No one wants to fight in that war when they know, one, it's not going well, two, people are dying, and three,
0: despite what we were told, they don't want us there. And they don't seem to know what their objective is either at this point, especially now that, you know, Russians haven't pulled out. They've repositioned, as you point out. And it doesn't seem like there's a clear strategy for what's next for them. What's your sense from being on the ground there? Well, it's a really good question is what was the strategy? You know, so that's a big head scratcher
1: for me. So I think one big thing that I've taken out of this is that I think Western intelligence has been a failure and an overrating of Putin's strategic acumen, if you want to call it that. You not know, this master strategist playing 3D chess, He's actually an emotional player, and this is an emotional war. And they really had one strategy, which was that they're going to go in in 24 hours, decapitate the government, Zelensky walking down the street in chains, new guy gets in, he signs a peace treaty, we roll in the tanks, you know, the Russians roll in the tanks, and then dares the West to come get him. Now, how do you pull that off? It's a big gamble. How do you pull that off? You've got to query how severe the West sanctions would have been in that situation if there was a complete sort of, decapitation of the government in that way. After 24 hours when they didn't take the Andropov airport and they had the uh, failures there, basically they couldn't sort of have that kind of contingent warfare or leapfrogging, didn't have the air bridge. And so it all failed. And instead of sort of regrouping, thinking what's next, they just threw everything in. And so everyone presumed that, okay, if you can't take Kiev the way that they would take it in that fashion, that they would never actually try to – attack it and invade it. Anyone that's been there, if you haven't been there, it's 13 times the size of the island of Manhattan. It's massive. It's got a river running through it. It's a disaster of a city to try to take militarily, right? You would not – urban warfare there is a nightmare, and which they've now found out. And so th- it's very unclear what the strategic objectives were. Um, if they were to sort of create a buffer zone state, well, as for all the reasons I said before, the, the Ukrainian self-identity now will never – seek closer ties with Russia. If it was to stop NATO from being aligned, well, that's a failure, that's certainly not the case. If it was to keep- Strengthen NATO. Right, NATO's never been stronger, right? Right. Certainly um, for, you know, this side of- I mean, the Germans are even talking about beefing up their military. Well, German rearmament. I mean, the the number one absolute no-no of uh, Russian foreign policy is to have the Germans rearming, and here they are. You've got the Swedes wanting to join NATO, which was unthinkable. The idea now, basically, look, the truth of the matter is, Russia's got very bad choices ahead of it. About a 1,000 people run Russia, as you know. 999 of them know this is going terribly, but they can't tell their boss because he doesn't take bad advice. But Russia's choices are remove Putin or become a client state of Xi Jinping's China. That's it. I mean, this is their pariah state now. It's impossible to see with all these war crimes that are coming out horrifically day by day, hour by hour, some outstanding reporting in the field there. It's hard to see how any serious politician could ever sit down with Vladimir Putin ever again in any sort of conceivable sense or how he could ever lift sanctions. So how to- Or
0: how he could ever really go anywhere except for China. Right. He, I mean, he's stuck right, at this point. Right. And so, so are all the billionaires. And their yachts are getting right. taken and their mobility right. is getting taken right. and their, their businesses are not going to be able to do business well. They, they worldwide. can't raise their kids in London, grad,
1: you know? Crimea in the summertime is not as nice as Saint-Tropez in the summertime if you've got a right. super yacht. And so And they like Miami too. Yeah, right. So that pressure is building. That pressure is building on Putin. And it's only been seven weeks, you know, and we'll see where that gets to. But yeah, you know, he's a paranoid guy as well. We know that. He's a food taster, like an old Tsar. You germaphobe. Know. Yeah, germaphobe. You know, he's very isolated. Isolated perhaps for his health reasons, but also isolated because he doesn't trust people. You know, there's lots of interesting things to come out of there's all sorts of things, interesting things have come out of this, the underperformance of the Russian army. But also, you know, the leaking by the FSB of the attempts to assassinate Zelensky in the early weeks was quite extraordinary. And this guy's meant to be the like Mr. KGB, and his own agencies were basically undermining And him. they're
0: blabbing in their mouths, and that's the thing that he, you know, hates the most. Right. So I want to talk about Zelensky in a yeah. second because you went to Zelensky's hometown. But before I get to that, you know, we are talking about the ineptitude of the Russian military. Mm-hmm. That actually is extended to the sky as well. Every, yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about a no-fly zone, but they haven't commanded the air. No, not the way you would expect. Their ability to have sort of blended warfare,
1: as you would expect of a modern military, is not being demonstrated at all. That's the big head scratcher. Like, they've used uh, long-range bombardment very effectively and brutally and indiscriminately and horrifically, but – the ability to integrate their, you know, their land, air, and sea power has been non-existent. I mean, the big question going into this, and we didn't know this, was can a very unsophisticated middle power economy power a sophisticated military superpower? The answer is no. They don't have the logistical wherewithal. They don't have the technical wherewithal. They haven't got the supply chain capabilities. You know, they're really kind of a bit of a basket case economy that sells oil and gas to the world and a bunch of people steal the majority of it. And so they have not really been able to sustain what is expected of a modern military effort. And they're not match fit. Apart from, you know, blowing up Aleppo, blowing up Grozny, you know, stealing bits and pieces like, you know, South Ossetia or Crimea, et cetera. They haven't really fought a modern war and they clearly don't know how to do it. And that has been the, the striking failure. As I said before, you know, Putin's armies wouldn't beat any, you know, Ukrainians are a minnow, and they're absolutely in Australian parlance, tallying him up. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's incredible to see.
0: But as you point out, they are good at pushing a button from far away and blowing things up indiscriminately and brutally. That's what they did in Grozny. Many expect they're going to do this to Ukrainian yeah. cities going forward. Yeah. They're not going to put their, their sons on the line, right. but they're going to sit back and yeah. just bomb the heck out of
1: these yeah. places. I mean, that's the real worry for me as we sit here now is Putin has lost this war, in my opinion, in any kind of strategic objective, but he can destroy Ukraine whilst losing and is destroying Ukraine whilst losing right. and is killing tens of thousands of people. I mean, we don't know how many people are going to be dead in cities like Liverpool, in you know, Hadkiv, places right. like this. It's going to be horrendous in mass graves that have been dug you know 10 million plus have been displaced you know five million are in europe now so the country is being raised as we sit here and you know hitler had lost the war you know maybe 42 certainly by 43 yet europe was destroyed on the way out because he had a lunatic that wouldn't give in and you know, putin finds himself in a similar situation where as i said it was an emotional decision to go in you know he'd been egged on by the sort of ethno-historical nationalists you know in his inner circle and they believed that the west was finished and they called it this sort of epochal moment of the withdrawal from afghanistan that, you know, saying to him look at this there's awful images of afghanis falling off u.s planes leaving out of kabul not to mention that america's fractured politically all the all the things that you know look at nato it's never stood up to us once you know they never really will they, they want our oil and gas you know they'll end up taking Nord Stream too And so, you know, his bet was that they won't do anything. And so, you know, that strategic miscalculation, you know, is probably gonna be the end of Putin. No doubt, let's hope so. One hopes, it's over to the Russian people for that though. Only the Russian people can really make that. That's right. And they're still getting from their media that everything's going well. Well, that's interesting actually, you know, there's some peculiar things that have come out of this, but the polling for the support of the war, it started off in the sixties. Now in the eighties, now that could just be a general nationalist surge of people just sort of getting behind their country when there's an invasion. But there are very, very few independent sources of information there. Any that exist that have gone now, that you know, even the pseudo-independent ones are gone. And you know, I do speak to a lot of Russians uh, that are there. The brain drain out of the country is extraordinary, right? Because you know, those that are kind of in any way middle class or educated trying to get out for obvious reasons. But, you know, when you look at the way they get information, they get it through Telegram or they get it through VPNs. There's a website like Medusa and some others where they, they source their news. But it's very hard to get, you know, accurate reporting about what's happening. And they're afraid to do it. Right. You're putting yourself at risk. You look at Navalny. Uh, you look at anyone that speaks out. You know, it's 15 years prison for questioning the merits of the special operation, as they call it euphemistically or Orwellian um, in, its, in its sort of uh, nomenclature. So... It's very difficult. And at, unsurprising as a result, the support for Putin is still quite high. But how long does that last? Um, you know, you'll start to see shortages there. The economy is collapsing, you know.
0: And they're going to be standing in food lines right. like they were, you know, well, during indeed. the Soviet era. Well,
1: indeed. I which mean, they haven't in many, many years. Well, that's one of the interesting things that going to come out of this is, you know, Ukraine's so – Heavily integrated into global food supply, uh, there's going to be big spikes and shortages around that. Uh, right. All, in all right. parts of the world,
0: Africa as well. And- yeah, that's the unfortunate part: is the global food supply is affected. But in Russia, you know, we haven't even clamped down all the sanctions we could clamp down. Right. So it's going to get worse for them. There's well, that's no
1: doubt. it. The screws can continue to be tightened. It'd be interesting to see, you know, whether or not the. The Germans and the Austrians can break the addiction to oil and gas in shorter time. Now, I think it's unrealistic to say they're going to turn it off the way the United States has, but they could really make it an engineering challenge and say, we're going to be off in a year or two years and just really sprint at it and find other ways, right? There are things like small modular reactors. You know, there are other ways you could do Batteries, it. Batteries, all battery, kinds If you get really aggressive at it, you know, the Germans are great engineers. That's right. Um, and if they treat it like a moral imperative and an engineering imperative, I think they could do it. But- You know, in the absence of more sanctions like that, we need to arm the Ukrainians with everything possible, everything short of a no-fly zone, which essentially would be asking US pilots to shoot down Russian pilots, which no one wants to see that happen. But there's a lot of armament that can be given. They are pretty well trained in using a lot of the – they can use the Eastern, the old Eastern bloc stuff right away, as you'd know, but they're pretty good on the Western stuff as well. We shouldn't be afraid of what Putin's going to do because he's done it all already. You know, everyone rightly worries about chemical weapons. Well, and we're worried about nuclear. Well, nuclear as well. Huge concern, right? And I'd said he could destroy the country on the way out. He could destroy the world on the way out, right? One would hope that that's a threshold for his inner circle to remove him. But I also think when when we've seen him talk about hypersonics, when we've seen him talk about chemical weapons, when we've seen him talk about nukes, to me, it's a projection of weakness. Had this war gone well? Doesn't it, that's No. He wouldn't be talking about that because he tends
0: to be sitting in Kiev and go, look at me. Yep. Like you said, Zelensky in chains. Right.
1: And meanwhile, Zelensky is a global hero. Right. You know, I think for Putin, you know, to say, oh, we're still important. He's number one for years, irrelevance, right? Russia was humiliated. Now Russia's strong again. And so before the Soviet empire was a disaster, we're going to rebuild the Soviet empire. So he sees how bad this is going. You know, I mean, he knows. And so he's got to say- Russia still matters. No matter, what you, no matter how bad our army's going, we can still destroy you, you know, where you sit. And so that's scary. I, get, I worry about it too. We all do. I mean, when I was sitting in Ukraine and, you know, the nuclear power plants were going off a lot. Well, line. Australia yeah. is the
0: safest place to be, well, right? Australia I think it's and actually New Zealand. Zealand. I think it's New Zealand. But, yeah.
1: uh, you know, we, there's a bit more room in New Zealand. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the, um, the nuclear threat is a real threat. But I do think it's projection weakness.
0: Let me ask you this. What was the most striking thing or things that you saw on the ground while you were doing your reporting in Ukraine? I mean, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the ordinary kind of dignity
1: and bravery of people, and the and thing is, right, like take one example. When I was in Kiev before the war started, I was staying at a hotel. The war starts. City's under attack. The Russians are coming down very quickly, right? So they were at Chernobyl within a couple of hours, which is really less than 100 miles away, right? So they're on their way. And everyone that worked there kept looking after us, like foreign journalists like me sitting there. I'm thinking to myself, these people's countries under attack. And they're helping me out, feeding me, looking after me, you know, making sure that we've got everything we need and asking if we're all right. I'm like, man, your country's under attack. Right, they're not
0: home with their families shoring up. They're they're still doing their job. right. Right.
1: And so – that kind of basic decency um, is something that's just extraordinary. So people's capacity to remain good to one another, despite really kind of awful pressure and, you know, insurmountable odds, they've never really lost their sense of humanity. And, you know, when I was in Lviv, the city got rocketed twice in the, when, when Biden was in Poland. it happened, yeah. you know, And then less than 24 hours later, there's an open air concert in the city and people are singing, dancing and, You know, so that ability to maintain optimism and your sense of humanity and decency, and when you look at what the Russians have done to them, and when you look at some of these war crimes around, you know, murdering of civilians, you know, uh, systematic rape of women and children, it's horrific. And yet, as I said, there is an anger. They have not lost their humanity and their constant generosity to me, whenever I needed something, a hand with something, can you help me, you know, take a look at this document or do you know someone here
0: or can I – it's endless. This extends to the government people too? Yeah. you talk to?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is that there is a real sense of national purpose and unity there, unsurprisingly. Yeah. Now, I'm not really an expert in Ukrainian politics, but I know enough to know it's very divisive, very fragmented. Uh, you've got Zelensky who ran as an outsider. He comes in with really not much of a political apparatus. You've always had the Russia question, do we go east, do we go west? And when I first arrived, a, a server there in a restaurant said to me, you know, uh, Ukraine's like a wishbone, you know, chicken wishbone, being pulled, at, you know, east and west. And she said, I don't we don't know which way it'll break. And, you know, I thought that's an interesting way of putting it. That pressure has always existed in in Ukraine about, you know, how do they deal with, you know, their Russo heritage, how do they express their own sovereign identity, and how do they deal with a Big brother that wants to own them and if they can't own them, wants to kill them, right? And so yeah, but they are unified now around those questions. And that unity exists from the top to the very bottom and is completely aligned. Just an incredibly resilient people. Right. The I mean extraordinarily resilient. When you look at the you gotta, you know, we can talk about the underperformance. Nevertheless, it's still the Russian army and it is staging a land and sea and air invasion of your country, which you share an enormous border with. And Apart from weapons, there's no cavalry coming from the West.
0: Not even advisors at this point.
1: Right. You know, there's been foreign legions that have gone and joined the fight, but broadly speaking, they know they're on their own. Huge amount of bravery and huge amounts of resilience and have never really lost hope. Even when those really wild opening days of the fight where it was very fast moving and unclear which way it would go, they dug in and fought like demons and, you know, you can't put a price. You know, it's one of these things, right? In war, you can't put a price on which side wants it more, but you can't always a contest a will. It really is. And when you're fighting for something that you believe in, versus you've been told a bunch of lies or you're going on a false pretense, and when you arrive, it all becomes very clear. You can't really lie. You know, you can lie beforehand, but you can't lie with your eyes. And so. You know, I think the, the Russian soldiers understand uh, what, what's going on, and I think that's impacting on their fighting.
0: Did the people you interacted with, did you get a sense from them that they felt that the United States and NATO have their back as much as possible, or is it just do they still feel very limited? I
1: think it's fair to say that they appreciate the help that they've got, but they certainly want more. The big message coming out of you know, Zelensky to politicians I interacted with, to military, personnel to you know, average punters on the street it was they would, you know we would call it a no-fly zone they say close our skies right and so their their phrase was close our skies and they're saying yeah, you know, we're dying on the ground because you won't close our skies and you know i was in lviv the mayor at the time there were 109 empty prams placed into central lviv representing the 109 children that to that point had died uh, in the war i'm sure it's far higher now regrettably and he said look we're dying here because you won't close our skies now for reasons that we've understand we can't enforce a no-fly zone but we can certainly help them close their own skies we can give them the kit that they need to do it and really even up that asymmetry so that the russians can't just bombard them at will because you know putin sitting in the kremlin and just shooting missiles indiscriminately and saying you know use the grozny tactics break these people and um you know they're not broken And I don't think they ever will be broken, but they can be destroyed completely and utterly and and in a genocidal type war. And and that's what we have to avoid.
0: Misha, tell me about your reporting on Zelensky and on his hometown.
1: Well, firstly, no relation. Yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) Right. You'd be surprised every time I've got my passport out. um, It's spelled differently. It is.
1: There's a one letter difference. But. uh, my name ID has gone up much higher. Zilin- z- for a long time, people were like, "What's this?" Z- 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 You're <laughs> like a
0: celebrity now.
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. But <laughs> driving through uh, Ukraine, when you get pulled over at all these checkpoints, you give them you know, your passport, and they'd look at it. And then first, they go, "What? You're Australian? Why are you here?" Yeah. Then they look at it and go, "Zelensky. This is a very interesting name." Yeah. yeah and then they yeah. insist that I was Ukrainian. Polish would insist I was Polish, but you know yeah. it's all a bit mixed there, as we know. But um, sure. Yeah, going to. Uh, Zelensky's hometown of Kivirig, which is south-central Ukraine towards Crimea. So I'd found out that, that was Zelensky's hometown. And, well, I am naturally interested in going there. And someone had told me some stories about it, saying there was this real sort of tough working class steel city, manufacturing yeah, city. Something
0: like 40 gangs dominated the city when yeah, he was growing there's, up.
1: there's a style of gangs called the Beguni, which is, literally means people who run. So what they would do is they would run – from one part of the city, have a fight, and then run back out, and there was forty odd gangs, it was highly organised. He kind of stepped into the breach after the it existed, but once the Soviet Union fell and there weren't sort of civic activities, so to speak, the kind of they this was the self organising structures of young people, and so that was Zelensky wasn't involved in. Is a bit younger, but he grew up in that kind of town, real tough town, where tough guy,
0: yeah. Think... We didn't know how tough he was going to be. Well, that's interesting you know we thought he was an entertainer, right. a comedian, right. right. We didn't know much about him, and before. the
1: reason why I was fascinated to go, and I caught a ride with a couple of guys that were dropping a one ton of supplies to the territorial defense force there so we're getting a ride down and going through the checkpoints and eventually we arrived and they said why are you come to kriveting and we said we explain. we're giving some um uh, supplies they said nobody comes to kriveting know yeah. and then i was told i was told by one server there that i have to be the only australian that's ever come and so that's probably <laughs> true actually probably yeah. true and so you know we asked them i had uh, my fixer ask uh, the local government about could we talk to people that grew up with zelensky and Next thing, the SBU, the Secret Service, turn up, unsurprisingly, and they said, "Who's asking about where Zelensky lives?" Sure, sure. <laughs> so I nearly get arrested by. Oh man! I nearly get arrested you by had the to Secret pull out Service. Your Australian Financial Review, right, part pretty right. Quick. Which you know, I don't know how good that was to get up against the Secret Service. And they're but, like, "What is this? Yeah. What, what are you talking <laughs> they about?" It kind of worked out, out pretty quickly that either. I was telling the truth. I was a really bad assassin because everyone knows that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Zelensky's in Kiev. Right. You only have to watch about two minutes of his social media to know that he hasn't fled at any stayed in Kiev. And, and,
0: I mean, Misha, our, our listeners can't see you, but you're like a friendly-looking guy.
1: You're, you don't, <laughs> like, look the part of the assassin, so maybe they thought "Well, this guy's deep undercover. Well, indeed. You know, uh, I did get pulled up quite a bit just as a side, though. Being a, a print journalist on your own quite a bit and – um I looked like that people would stop me quite a bit and ask me what I'm taking photos of because there was a fear about saboteurs, fear about yeah. Russian spies, and fair enough. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, you could get into some dangerous situations, nearly got arrested a couple of times like that, and some crews did get arrested and have guns pulled on them, et because people were on edge, right? But yeah, Zelensky's hometown, look, everyone knew that he was this entertainer. He played a president in a TV show called Servant of the People. He then goes on to become president. Extraordinary story. And so he's the entertainer come president. Is he now playing the Churchillian role? But really, he's a tough man from a tough town. This city is like, you know, it's more extraordinary to me. I grew up in a steel city. I grew up uh, in a place called Wollongong, which I would describe like Pittsburgh on the beach. Uh, nice. You know, it's Pittsburgh with surfing. <laughs>
0: so- hey, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Our football team is called the Steelers, a rugby wow. team. So, you know, that's the kind of ethos that I understood. And what's amazing to me, my background is I'm a, a union official for a long time with the Australian Workers' Union and travel to a lot of steel towns in Australia around the world. They're all the same. The kind of people that come up in these sorts of towns are no-nonsense people, do-what-I-say people, talk-straight people, and people that you can rely on. They were so friendly and generous to me because maybe we just hit it off in some way. But, you know, they also were kind of, uh, you know, could see through anyone that was sort of not on the level and that's where Zelensky comes from. His family, his parents still live in the same housing block that he was raised in. Incredible. Uh, You know, he's raised from right next to this huge Asselor Metal steelworks, which is not as modern as a lot of the steelworks you have in the United States or in Europe. A lot of still manual labor goes on there. So it's a tough work by tough people in a tough town. And that's where he's from. And that was why I went there was to understand the town that made the man. And having been there, I understood him a lot more. And you know, this is not a guy playing a role. This is a guy returning to his roots.
0: Well, it's a great piece. And it was published April 1st. You can find it on the Australian Financial Review website. That one,
1: I uh, managed to uh, twist uh, the editor's arm and get it uh, publicly available.
0: Misha, I want to thank you for stopping by today. This was extraordinarily enlightening for us who haven't been there and for our listeners who want to know more. Yeah, look, I mean, it's uh,
1: thank you for having me. It's a single honour of my life to report on the stories and the bravery of Ukrainians. And, you know, I remain interested in what's happening there and I uh, remain with them. You know, to spend a week in Ukraine is to fall in love for a lifetime. I spent nearly seven weeks there, and their bravery is extraordinary, and we should do everything we can to help them prevail. So, yeah, Karina. Yeah.
0: Well, listen, we'll have you back on the podcast under better circumstances. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it.